If you have your uh, Bibles, uh, please turn with me back to the Gospel according to John chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13. But our passage for exposition is going to be verses 3 through 13. I just want to read those first two verses to try to make sure we're keeping everything we're looking at in mind. And um, I'll also say, uh, no worries, we're not going to be going uh, deep into the Greek today. (laughs) So, uh, if you were worried about that, you can breathe a sigh of relief. Um, All right, with that being said, uh, John chapter 1, picking up in the first verse, it says, In the beginning was the Word, or the Logos, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, or that could say, it did not overpower it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you would please pray with me. Father, again, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus And we want to thank you for your written word that you've given to us to teach us about the divine word, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Help me now to rightly explain this text. I pray that you would guard all of our hearts and our minds from error and guard my lips from error. Lead us into the truth by your spirit. Edify your saints and may this all be to the glory of your great name. Again, it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, as we saw last week, the Logos, or Jesus, is explicitly said to be the creator of all things. Again, it says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, not one thing came into being that has come into being. That is, all non-eternal things... All things that began to be at a certain time were brought into being through the Logos. This all things is all things without exception, whether things in the spiritual realm or in the physical cosmos. The Spirit of Christ states the same point through Paul in this way. We've already heard this read here this morning. By Him, that is by Jesus... All things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So not only does He create all things, He sustains all things. In Him all things hold together. And then in Hebrews 1, God the Father says to God the Son, who is this divine Logos, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. And this is a quotation in Hebrews from Psalm 102. It is the divine Son, the divine Logos, who laid the very foundation of the earth, who created the physical cosmos, and who sustains it. And it is this same Logos who created the heavens and all that dwells therein. John then goes on to say, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What does this mean? That the Logos has life itself in him. And then further, what does it mean that The life is the light of men. One interpretation that I came across says that this is a continuation of the thought from verse 3. Since all creatures have their being in Him, it stands to reason that all living creatures derive life from Him. While this is certainly true, He is the source of of all life in the created order. I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit is communicating here. And the reason I don't think so is because of the way these ideas of life and light are used in the rest of John's gospel, the rest of his writings, and even the rest of the scriptures. I'm not going to go through every passage because we would be here all day if I did so. But suffice it to say that throughout the rest of the gospel, John consistently associates the life that inheres in Christ with a higher quality of life than what we have in this fallen world. He repeatedly speaks of it as eternal and abundant life in which we share in the divine life. To give two examples, we read in chapter 5 that uh, Jesus says... Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present possession, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has, past tense, passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now get this. 
For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So we see there that eternal life is connected to Christ, as is eternal damnation. This has been given to Christ. Life inheres in Him, and He gives it to whom He will. This, of course, shows that Jesus has life in in and of Himself, and that this life is referring specifically to eternal life. Life, because it is that life which he gives to those who were once dead. Namely, those who are said to be born of God later in chapter 1, verse 13. Think of it for, this way for a moment. We don't speak of natural life, typically, in terms of that which was once dead. Apart from a miracle, that which is dead stays that way. But this is not just talking about physical life. This is talking about spiritual life. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a physical component. In the final estate, we will have our physical bodies. But what's being discussed here is something that we can possess now, even before we lose this natural life. This is a communion with God. Similarly, John records that Jesus defines this life in his high priestly prayer. Jesus says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, it is eternal communion with the triune God. In his first epistle... John refers to Jesus as the Word of life and the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So we see this idea that the Logos as life runs throughout John's writings. Additionally, John repeatedly uses the theme of light when referring either to God or specifically to Christ. And it tends to be coupled with this idea of life. For example, we read Jesus saying in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, You will recall from our introduction to John's gospel that he is associated with Ephesus, having spent a large portion of the latter part of his life there. However, it was the Apostle Paul who was first associated with the church in that city. In his inspired epistle sent to the church there in Ephesus, Paul says of those in Christ, now 
you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which, that, uh, which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, and the it being referred to here is most likely an ancient hymn of the church. But, uh, <clears throat> it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Again, we see these ideas of life and light coupled together in Paul now. Arise from the dead. You which were dead, have life. And Christ, who is the light, will shine on you. From the usage of these ideas in the rest of John's works specifically, and even in the New Testament in general, I'm left to conclude that what John is attributing to the divine Logos here is that he has eternal life, spiritual life in himself, And that eternal life shared in communion with the triune God is the light of men. As I heard another pastor explain it, quote, It denotes the principle of life that inheres in God himself as the self-existent living deity. As it pertains to creatures, this life is that which God communicates to human beings as an endowment when He causes them to participate in His own life. This divine life is what the Scripture calls eternal life, not unending animate animate existence as presently experienced, but the life that characterizes the eternal God and the realm He inhabits. This life, which is the light of men, shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overpower it. Again, this takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. We saw that in the beginning, literally, in the beginning, taking us back to Genesis chapter 1. Well, John's not finished making allusions to that. Just as the chaos and darkness that was over the face of the deep in Genesis 1-2 was overcome by the first creation of God's Word when He said, let there be light, so spiritual darkness is overcome by the divine Word who is the light of men. If the Logos is life and the life was the light of men, then the darkness must be the absence of the Logos and the life and light that are inherent in Him. That is, the darkness is rebellion against God as opposed to communion with God. And it is death apart from God 
as opposed to life with him. When the light shines in the darkness, the darkness is utterly helpless to overcome it. F.F. Bruce comments, quote, This is true of ordinary light. A little candle can dispel a room full of darkness and not be dimmed by it. Light and darkness are opposites, but they are not opposites of equal power. Light is stronger than darkness. Darkness cannot prevail against it. Now that the word has come into the world, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The light of the world could not be overcome by the power of darkness for all its hostility. Similarly, darkness cannot overcome those who walk in the life or in the light. <clears throat> Now, up to this point, John has been discussing the eternal divine logos uh, in, in relation to eternity, in relation to God, in relation to creation. But he somewhat shifts gears now in verse 6. <clears throat> there came a man... See, the divine Logos is much more than a man. But now there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The apostle is not referring to himself here. As we learn in the introduction to the gospel, the apostle John never refers to himself by name. He always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Rather, he is referring to the prophesied forerunner of Christ, the one who cries out in the wilderness to make the way straight for the Lord. He's referring to the last of the Old Testament prophets, and indeed the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He's referring to John the Baptist. Jesus himself said of John the Baptist, Truly I say to you, Among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's that's pretty high praise coming from the light of men himself, wouldn't you say? I want you to notice what John's mission is. First, notice his origin. He's sent from God. This man is sent from God. John the Baptist was merely a man. He was a mere man who was sent by God. The name John literally means gift from God. The Holy Spirit tells us that uh, elsewhere... 
To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, the reason I bring this up is because what I want you to see from this is God gives teachers of various sorts as gifts to His people. Those teachers are not to be regarded as inherently superior to anyone else in the church. Rather, it is the gifting given to these individuals that is glorious, meaning the glory belongs not to the teacher or to the church to whom the gift is given, but to the one who gave the gift and sent the man. The glory belongs... To God alone. John the Baptist did not point people to himself. He said, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. John was sent by God to point people to Christ. The text then says, John came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. Well, what could be more appropriate for the last of the Old Testament prophets? Because, as we talked about in Sunday school, the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Likewise, ministers of the gospel today should always be pointing people away from themselves and toward the true light, who is Christ One of our primary objectives as ministers of the gospel should be that all who sit under our teaching might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they may have eternal life in His name. Ministers of the gospel should also recognize about themselves what John the Baptist recognized about himself. Namely, that he was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. Ministers of the gospel are not able to save anyone, not even ourselves. We are those called by God to testify of the one who alone has the power to impart eternal life to otherwise dead sinners. To slightly alter something that Martin Luther once said, we are all mere beggars telling other beggars where to find the bread of life. Now, Having briefly considered John the Baptist, the one who makes straight the paths of the Lord, the forerunner of the Lord, having briefly considered him, now the apostle returns to the subject of the pre-incarnate Christ. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. By this is meant that the Logos is the superior or the ultimate light. All other lights pale in comparison to His light. 
as the evangelist Ray Comfort has expressed it, comparing Jesus with history's greatest of human leaders is like comparing the sun to a flashlight with no batteries. And truthfully, that analogy falls short of showing the vast differences between them. In his commentary uh, of John's Gospel, A.W. Pink points out four ways in which Christ is the true light. He says, first, Christ is the true light as the undeceiving light. Satan himself, we read, is transformed into an angel of light, but he appears as such only to deceive Christ is the true light in contrast from all the false lights which are in the world. Second, as the true light, Christ is the real light. The real light in contrast from the dim and shaded light which was conveyed through the types and shadows of the Old Testament ritual. And just to take a pause from what Pink has to say here, even John the Baptist is later on in the gospel that we are considering right now, he is referred to as a lamp in which the Jews enjoyed the light, his light, the light of John the Baptist for a time. But he is not the ultimate light. In fact, his light is derived from the one to whom he was pointing. Pink continues, third, As the true light, Christ is the underived light. There are lesser lights which are borrowed and reflected as the moon from the sun. But Christ's light is his own essential and underived glory. Fourth, as the true light, Christ is the super eminent light in contrast from all that is ordinary and common There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another of the stars, but all other lights pale before uh, him who is the light. The true light is said here to enlighten every man. And we need to be careful how we handle the scriptures and not just browse over that and make some assumptions here because... This is referring to every man without distinction as opposed to every man without exception. That is to say, it is referring to every kind of man, not every single man to ever exist. How do I know? Because of what is said in the next four verses where a distinction is explicitly made. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." In light of verses 12 and 13, we would not claim that the world that did not know him in verse 10 means 
all the world without exception. Because that would mean literally nobody in the world receives the light. But the text explicitly states the contrary. In the same way, verse 9 is not referring to every man without exception. It is referring to every man without distinction. In other words, both Jews and Gentiles, and this is what John's trying to say, both Jews and Gentiles are among those enlightened by Christ. This is another theme that will continue to appear throughout John's gospel. Listen to this and see if it sounds familiar, but I'm going to explain it a little differently than maybe you've heard it before. God so loved the world, not just the Jews, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him, whether Jew or Gentile, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Consider now what is being said in verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. Since the creation of the cosmos, the Logos who created that cosmos has been in the world. For all things have been created through Him and for Him, and in Him all things hold together. Was that not true prior to the incarnation? Of course it was. Yet mankind in general has not known Him. Why? How could that be? Well, Scripture tells us. Because from the time of the fall, mankind has been in love with his sin. The sons of Adam have done as their father before them and exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have abandoned the purpose for their creation. Man was created in the image of God for the purpose that he would be like God. Though man continues to bear the image of God, the unregenerate man is nothing like him. Adam decided he wanted to be like God, but without being in relationship to God. Think about it. What was the temptation of the serpent that finally caused Eve to give in? The serpent said of the forbidden tree, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And while Eve was fooled by this line of reasoning, Adam was not. Yet Adam purposely and willfully rebelled against the Creator and partook of the fruit. Now Adam's posterity, unregenerate mankind, is dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, according to their God, who is the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil and Satan. They are by nature children of wrath. In general, up to the time of Christ's uh, incarnation, 
The Gentile nations knew nothing of Him except that which nature reveals to all mankind about the Creator, namely His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Or as we talked about in Sunday school, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, it is enough to damn them to hell and not enough to save them. This is all they have. Nevertheless, Christ chose a nation out of the world, an entire nation for Himself. And it was to this nation of Israel that He revealed Himself in special ways prior to His incarnation, perhaps most notably through what is known as theophanies or sometimes Christophanies. It was the Logos who on multiple occasions appeared to Abraham. He said, he said to the Jews, and this is after the incarnation, he said to the Jews, Abraham longed to see my day. He saw it and was glad. It was the Logos who appeared to Jacob in a dream who stood at the top of the ladder going up into heaven. It was the Logos with whom Jacob wrestled. It was the Logos that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It was the Logos who led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. It was He who appeared as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was the Logos who Isaiah saw in his temple vision, which John's going to make explicitly clear later in his gospel. And there are many more examples than these. Likewise, it was to this nation of Israel that the oracles of God were entrusted. The holy scriptures which pointed to Christ. It was to the Jews that the tabernacle and later the temple were given where God would be present with His people in a special way. It was to the Jews that the sacrificial system of types and shadows was given, which things point to Christ. Yet, sadly, John writes, He came to His own, and those who who were His own did not receive Him. Old Testament history bears this out over and over again. God would miraculously save them. The people would fall into sin and thereby get into trouble again. The people would repent, maybe. And God would miraculously save them again. And each time they would drift further and further away. As we will see, some of the Jews did receive Him, but most did not. In Hebrews 3, verses 16 through 19, we read, For who provoked Him, that is, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Him is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Logos, for who provoked Him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses... And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And we read the passage in Luke 11 during Sunday school this morning where Jesus said to them, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. You know, those prophets that testified of Christ. So you are witnesses, and you approve of the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. And some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against This generation, that is the generation living at the time of the incarnation of Christ's first advent. This is a sorry state of affairs. But praise God that this wretched state of affairs, both for Jews and Gentiles, is not the end of the story. John writes, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The receiving mentioned here is equivalent to believing in his name. That's why we would read in Hebrews that the reason they didn't enter his rest was because of unbelief. It's the same as saying they didn't enter his rest because they didn't receive him. Notice that it is those who believe, those who place their faith in Christ alone, who are born of God. This has been true throughout human history. It's not something that started to be true at the Incarnation. It wasn't that there was... This Old Testament dispensation whereby we were saved by law-keeping and now there's this New Testament dispensation where we're under grace. No, that is not correct. The Old Testament saints were saved in the same way we are saved. The only difference is that they placed their faith in the Christ to come and we have placed our faith in the Christ who has come. Those believing in the name of Christ have been given the right, or more literally, the Greek says, the authority to become the children of God. But what is the source of this faith through which we obtain this right? Is it something we choose on our own apart from God? Is it a cooperative effort between God and us? Is it something we inherit through physical descent? Verse 13 cuts off all these possibilities. Those who have faith in Christ are said to be born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. The threefold distinction here is meant to communicate that human 
fleshly generation in no way contributes to us being born from above into the family of God as the Jews and perhaps some Gentiles would have supposed. In general, the Jews believed that by virtue of their being the children of Abraham, they were also the children of God. But as one commentator succinctly puts it, the new birth is, quote, not of superior human descent, not of human generation at all, not of man in any manner of way. It depends, or excuse me, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, writes the Apostle Paul. And again he writes, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is, even the faith which joins us to Christ, even our receiving Christ, is itself a gift from God. We have no grounds for boasting in ourselves whatsoever. If we boast, we must boast in Christ alone. Thus we conclude with John what should be obvious. The children of God are born of God and God alone. The new birth is completely the work of the triune God alone. John does not go into detail about how this is so, at least not here, because his focus continues to be on the Logos in particular, though he will return to the subject of the new birth later in chapter 3. But we know from other places in Scripture that the Father plans our redemption, the Son accomplishes our redemption, and the Spirit applies our redemption. At the time of John's writing, there was more to the idea of being the son of a father than mere biology. Think, about, think back to that passage that we were, uh, read just a few moments ago from Luke 11. Jesus is saying to that generation, you're like your fathers. Well, conversely, that might be another way of saying, truly, you are the son of your fathers. Because the idea of being the son of a father was more than mere biology. A son was made to be like his father. Does that sound familiar? Made in the likeness of? Perhaps this is why Scripture describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. But now... We who have received the Logos by faith are the children of God, and therefore we ought to be imitators or imagers of God as beloved children. As Scripture says, we are to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness, the truth. In Christ, the Logos, we are restored to our original purpose, to rightly image God, to be like Him, and to be in communion with Him 
as His beloved children. So may God increase the light of Christ more and more in each of our lives. May we enjoy the abundant life that He has granted us in communion with Himself even now. And may He conform us to the image of His Son more and more with each passing day. Would you pray with me again, please? Father, again, we are thankful for Your Word, Your written Word, which reveals to us so clearly the divine Word, Your Son, Your true Son, the true light, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that those last things that I just said, I pray that that would be a reality in each of our lives, that you would increase the lot in our lives, that we would enjoy sweet fellowship with you as children, young, helpless children, enjoy fellowship with a father that loves them and cares for them. And I pray that the outcome of this would be that we would be more and more like Jesus. We pray all this to the glory of His name. Amen.